Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Boom, shaka frickin' laka. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Peck, and your name is Listener, and that's what you do. You listen. What a fucking week. Guys, got some big news. I'm happy. <laughs> I know. It's like breaking news. What? Are, are we sure we're listening to the right podcast? That's right, y'all. I'm happy. And I don't know if it's because I have a tan and thus my natural sort of beautiful, uh, the melanin in my skin is making me feel a little little trimmer, a little more vibrant, sort of like, it's, it's kind of like a natural foundation. It's like I'm wearing man makeup. And I'm fine with that. So you're judgmental. Anyway, guys, I'm feeling happy, man. It took me a long time. Had a bit of a breakthrough with the old therapist. I've only been going for 20 years, so it's good to know I'm making progress. Um, but no, I, you know, we, I was talking to him, and, and I'd had a moment over the last couple months where I was like considering taking antidepressants, and I just, you know, the reality is my life is so good, and I'm overpaid, and I've been incredibly lucky in my life to get to do all the things that I get to do, and yet... It seemed as though I just couldn't get out of my own head and I couldn't get out of my own way. And that while logically and like all evidence led to like my life is full and wonderful and I'm lucky. And yet it just seemed like I was racked with discomfort and and indecision and just that neuroses, that shitty committee, as they call it. Radio K-fuck, as my friends in the 12-step talk about, where, you know, you just wake up and your head is telling you all the reasons why you're not enough. And I'm sure none of you can identify with such a feeling. But, um, you know, I went to the shrink and and I talked about this and I just said, you know, throughout my whole life, the idea of stopping to enjoy what was going on felt like I was being irresponsible. That because, you know, whatever, who cares? I'd had like a bit of a challenging childhood with some financial insecurity insecurity, and what have you. That now that I like make a little bit of dough and life's okay, that it's incumbent on me to fortify myself. Like don't stop the well will run dry. So just work, 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 stock, you know, build up the bomb shelter because something's coming, you know? So while you're all out dancing and eating barbecue and enjoying your life, you're the idiots because the storm is coming and I'm going to have all the water. That's right. I have so many supplies in my sick storm shelter. I'm going to get my storm shelter sponsored by Nike fucking and everyone's gonna get a free pair of air max when they come into my storm shelter but you're not invited because it only holds me and my family and friends so sorry but that's really you know it was like i couldn't allow myself to just like sit and enjoy because there was just this idea that like a storm was a coming and uh the reality is is that you know life is cyclical and as sure as the great times are coming challenging times are coming as well But what am I going to do? You know, what am I going to live in like a perpetual state of fear and like discomfort because I'm like trying to prepare myself for the bad moments that are coming no matter really what I do and that I'm fairly responsible and that I got enough water, you know, I can absorb a emergency, you know, uh, uh, something to the effect of like if you can absorb, I heard Kamala Harris talk about this on 
on uh, The Breakfast Club, which was a really interesting um, episode. Charlemagne the God, please come on my podcast. But anyway, she was saying how like uh, many people, many Americans can't absorb like a $500 financial blow. And that's challenging. That's so real. And while, you know, I could, it's not lost on me how lucky I am that that's, you know, that I'm in that position and, and that I maybe don't need to sweat it so hard. So I don't know. I felt compelled to share this because I really like um, this podcast, The Mental Illness Happy Hour. And it's basically just like people talking about similar situations, you know, identifying through our fellow humans experience in life. And for me, that's what's brought me the most levity and relief in life is hearing that I'm not alone in these feelings and that many, if not most of the other people on this earth feel exactly or similarly to me. So you're welcome. Um, I also heard this guy, Scott Galloway, that I really want to get on my podcast bad. Scott, are you listening? Why would you be listening? You're a professor at NYU. You have better things to do than listen to this. But if you're, if like by chance you are, please come on my podcast. I will supply many bubbly waters and I will come to you wherever you want me to record. Um, he was being interviewed by my friend Nick Bilton on his podcast, Inside the Hive. Another great one. Another one. And he just basically said something to the effect of like, fuck this whole following your joy thing. These like Instagram aphorisms about how it's like, you know, you got to follow your joy. Follow your joy like it's a friggin' like it's a shooting star in the sky. No, he's like, don't follow your joy. Follow what you're good at. And if it just so happens that your joy aligns with what you're good at, great. Then you're Jay-Z, <laughs> you know? Like, but assume that perhaps the thing that brings you the most joy might be a wonderful hobby, but it might not make you any fucking money. And if you follow what you're good at, there's a good chance that that will bring you financial return, security, and that the byproduct of you following what you're good at will then bring you the joy that you're so looking for. And I think that's important because, uh, you know, it's all some people with this whole thing. Like, I don't know. I think that's what I'll push my kid to do. Follow what you're good at. Make a life for yourself. And if it happens to be, you know, if you happen to have the sweet, dulcet tones of an angel and he has a beautiful Adam Levine-esque soprano singing voice and he loves it, perfect. I mean, I'll be a stage dad. I have no problem with that. I'll lean on him heavy, making him practice instead of sleep. It's going to be a tough life for my kid. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But more so, I just, you know, I find that for the most part, you know, so much joy is, is born out of, you know, a little bit of financial security, a lot, you know, that allows you to have a good sort of secure life. I don't know what I'm saying. You get it. Oh, you don't get it? All right. Well, uh, on today's show, Jonathan Levine, brilliant director, friend of mine. Uh, we made a movie called The Wackness together that he wrote and directed, which was one of the biggest movies of my life. Not a lot of people saw it because it was a bit of an indie darling. But if you haven't seen it, you should because I'm in it. But who cares? It's actually just a dope movie with my favorite actor, Sir Ben Kingsley. And John did a hell of a job writing and directing it. More recently, um, he's directed a plethora of movies. Uh, one of my favorites, 50-50, with Seth Rogen and Joe Levitt. Um, 
That's right. I call him Joe Levitt, not Joseph Gordon Levitt, because we're close, even though we've never met. Um, and uh, yeah, and he just had a movie with Charlize Theron and, and Seth Rogen come out. So uh, I'm excited to share with you guys, my buddy John. Sorry, we talk about the wackness a lot, but it was very personal to me. And we actually, since we made it over 10 years ago, I don't think we've ever had a chance to truly um, reflect back on the experience. So anyway, I hope you guys watch it. But more importantly, I hope you enjoy Jonathan Levine. Bong bong. Levels check. Um, look at you, man. I'm so proud of you. Oh, thanks, dude. I can't believe it. <laughs> Are we starting? Yeah, no, right, this cool. looks this is solid. Wait, talk real quick? Yeah, 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 yeah. Perfect. You know what? Let me be like somewhat respectful of the process and actually okay. listen with some headphones. Okay. So that I Did you see yourself up there? Dude. That's that was a subway poster. That was a subway poster. I have another one, but I thought that was the coolest one. I, I you know, having watched your success and you've since the Wackness made so many good movies, but there's always this little part of me that I'm like, I bet the Wackness is his favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the one when people come up to me. I still remember when people come up to me and like tell me they like it. It's the one that means the most. Is it? Yeah. Why? Because it's personal and because it's like different and weird and like just reminds me of a time in my life and i don't know it's just uh and also it means that like i have a shorthand with those people yes um and it wasn't like you know what it was just something that i created that wasn't like a part of a sort of a any commercial there were no like uh, we, you know we wanted it to be commercial but like we kind of achieved our what we wanted with it and it wasn't it was generated by me and it was just kind of a i don't know it just feels very very personal and also the people who like it, they like it because of the the reasons I like it, and I imagine the reasons you like it. I I always think that the whole world didn't see the wackness, but the right people did. Yeah, 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 and, totally. And, and when people approach me about it, like I, as I said, because obviously I live in a world where Drake and Josh is like the paramount right, thing. Right. But if I'm in New York, like the rare occasions when I'll be walking like on the Lower East Side and someone will scream out Shapiro. <laughs> and I'm like, that's a real oh, that's one. That's amazing, dude. That's like, there was a, we were in Argentina. My, Annie and I were in Buenos Aires, my wife and I. Mm. And uh, Petra, the cinematographer of The Wackness, was living there. And she just, she took us to this, um, this like weird Ava Peron like mansion where it was like just if you could, you could not make a cooler party if you tried, like it was just like cool kids in this weird neighborhood in Buenos Aires, like spinning records, like in, in this beautiful mansion that they just like took over. You like knock on the door. There's like a secret password. <laughs> and I saw someone there in Buenos Aires who, who was like, you directed the whack this? Like, and no. I, yeah, totally, man. It was so crazy. It was so, so awesome. And so I remember like every person like that. It's, uh, well, I remember too, like obviously now you have such an incredible working sort of collaboration relationship with Seth Rogen. And I remember him coming up to me like six months after the Wackness came out and him feeling, and I'd actually worked for him two years prior to that. But Right, I, you were in Drillbit Taylor, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, I definitely probably um, didn't honor his material as I should have. But I just remember the wackness meaning a lot to him. And I don't know if it was just because he was like, you know, an early 30s Jew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, know? he was like a lot younger. He's a lot younger than, than me. 
Um, maybe not a lot younger, but yeah, definitely like, I mean, it's like a stoner, it's a comedy, but it's, there's a lot of drama to it and you don't get a lot of stoner dramas. In fact, it actually broke, but my high time stony award is here. Oh my God. Have you seen it? Have I ever showed you? No. It's like this, the bong was here. And my brother knocked it over and the bong broke off. But here's the bong. No way. Functional bong? Oh, yeah, man. I, I think like I've smoked out of it so much that I think like I should, I, I haven't, I've never cleaned it either. Solid. I don't know what people, do people clean bongs? Yeah, you use uh, sea salt and alcohol. Really? And you put it in and it, yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. Cut right through. I stopped. I think I. I think I'm giving up bong hits. Are you giving up bong hits, but yeah. not weed? I don't think I'll give up weed. No. Yeah. I like. I just got this little pen. I smoke it less though now. But I just. I got this little pen, like the vape pen. It's just easy. Yeah. Um. So yeah. I fucked up getting sober six months. I got sober one month after Sundance when the Wackness went to Sundance. Yeah. So it was like literally before all the hype and sort of like this great media rollout of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're getting like, you remember we're being plied left and right by everyone who's like, yo, you smoked that loud. You're trying to get high. And I'm like, fuck, man. Right. (laughs) I definitely like probably could have picked a better time. But, and then I remember high time saying like, we, 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 we might, you're in consideration to be person of the year. <laughs> I was like, thank you so much, but I no longer indulge in the that devil's lettuce. That, that killed it for you. They gave it to James Franco that year. I remember because we went and I think he got it for uh, Pineapple Express. Uh, and God he didn't, him. he didn't smoke weed either, but he definitely like played, played. You were like, how could you not smoke weed? Yeah. He looks like he smokes a ton of weed. He seems like he smokes a ton of weed, but I don't think he does. But that high time Stony Award thing. There was this thing called the 420 limo. My wife does not smoke weed. In fact, she really hates it. And we sat in the 420 limo for a second, and they circulate marijuana through like the air system. They hot box it. It, it. I don't know how they do it. They don't just smoke it in the thing. They like literally like pipe it into the AC. What kind of limo are we talking? Hummer limo? Or are we talking traditional? I don't. Lincoln you know, I don't limo? remember. We got so high, we were in there for like five minutes. I couldn't even tell you what it was. I picture like in my mind's eye, it's like a the. <laughs> Felt like Boogie Nights Roller Girl limo, like an 80s limo, but I think it was probably just, you know, a regular standard limo, but you didn't miss much of the High Times Tony Awards. No disrespect to High Times, but... uh, No, God bless them. They're fighting the good fight. I mean, have you found, to me, most people I know who really love weed for a long time, it eventually, for better or for worse, turns on them a little bit. Like it either the efficacy lessens or it actually starts having negative effects. Or have you not found that? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess like maybe over the course of the last decade, I found it because I've just sort of tapered it off. Like I, yeah, I think it, you know, it definitely kind of creates anxiety sometimes where there wasn't any. But the other thing is it's kind of offset by the fact that the weed technology is improving and you can find a strain that kind of really like works for you. Mm. So, um, I just find that like, yeah, I just don't like forgetting stuff. So when I drink and smoke weed together, I just kind of like my, like I forget stuff. Yeah. And I don't really like that. I mean, I still think we like what I really like smoking weed, like during the day, like on a, like on a random weekend afternoon, but you can't do that with a kid either because like, if something happened to my kid while I was high, even if it wasn't directly caused by that, I would feel terrible. Yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, so like there's just life stuff just starts to 
get in the way of it. Are you, and I don't think I'm talking out of school because he's quite public about it. Like, are you, I'm amazed by someone like Seth Rogen who can ingest as much marijuana as he does and be so productive yeah. and like that funny and that on it. Like it doesn't, it, it seems to enhance him. Yeah, it really, really does. Um, and it doesn't, yeah, when you watch the way he does it, like he, he clearly relies on it. Um, but it is seems like purely like a positive re- relationship. I mean, now he has this. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Like he created his own like weed company in, in Canada, and so and it's great. I mean, the yeah, the way he uses weed, it is almost like you know when like you power up in a video game or something like that. Like he just it's it's purely kind of this thing that really feeds him creatively, and he also is like it's not like he fits any of the sort of stereotypes of a stoner he's always on time he's always like kind of on top of stuff he always he has the great memory so i don't know maybe it's just his dna is such that he weed works really well with him it doesn't with me like i can't i mean like he's like i can't be high on set i can't be high writing i can sometimes be high if i'm alone but if i'm working with other people it's hard like any social like work related thing. I, I just can't be high. I mean, I imagine like going to set and you're directing a movie and you're high is like a real shortcut to a panic attack. People are asking you questions and like, I, I don't know how people do it, but a lot of the great directors did. I mean, you mentioned Robert Allman right. before he was high all the time. Hal Ashby was high all the time. Like a lot of the directors I love were high a lot, but it was the seventies. They were probably on Coke too. They were probably yacked out. And also, like, the the potency of the weed was just... It was a different world. It was different, yeah. It's like when you go to the Caribbean or something like that. Like, it's like weed you can just smoke all day. Yeah, now it's like cross-hybrid shit and called... Exactly. It's called shit like... This new strain's called Lopus. <laughs> and I'm like, well, it's named after an autoimmune deficiency? Like, what? Yeah, that terrifies me. Um, do you... So, when you're... Did you always want to make movies? Um, yeah, I mean, for as long as I can remember, I did want to make movies. Um, I really liked, I re- I was really into wrestling. I was actually just talking about this. Time. I was really into like WWF as a kid. Same. And I got really into like the storytelling of that and the sort of drama of that. And then I started like watching it and noticing various angles and the way music was used and the way, cause like that was the kind of the revolution of WWF was it was adding sort of like AV shit to the experience um, and these and these plot lines too and like stuff like I like stuff like Piper's Pit and like stuff like that would complement that would further the story but wasn't always wrestling it was like male soap operas right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. right um, and so then I started getting into like then I got like a living in New York there was like a VHS delivery like video store called Video Room on the Upper East Side and I would start getting like kind of I ran out of like watching the dumb movies so I started getting like kind of good movies when I was like 12 I started watching like Taxi Driver Do the Right Thing like stuff like that um and yeah just got really into it and then I started making stuff and just doing dumb stuff with my friends getting a video camera and then and then I kind of like did treat it like like almost like a trade like I just started incrementally getting better and better by just doing it um went to film like went to high school like found the video class there started learning like tape to tape editing went to you know undergrad started uh, at brown and started just like working my way into the film program there 
and a lot of these places like at, at in high school and at, at brown it was hard to get into the f- film classes because there were like one class for 30 kids and there's 200 kids who want to do it right but um but i just managed to do it and then like after that um started working for paul schrader for like a year and then went to film school and then i've just been lucky that like i've been able to work since then brown is sort of always toted as like the liberal arts ivy, right? Like that's where you go uh, because I feel like it's amongst those like Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth. And yet if you're like into music or making movies or writing, like that's, that's yeah, where you want to go, like, right? supposed to be more creative, I guess. Right. Um, you know, and so there are a lot of great filmmakers who came out of there. Um, Doug Lyman, who did Go and Born Identity and, and uh, Todd Haynes is like the biggest one. Right. Um, so like the whole and it's a very like theory driven film program like it's a very kind of intellectual film program, um, but yeah I mean it was like that you don't get grades there I mean you do but you can choose to take any class pass fail like there's ways to like game the system you don't really have to unless you want to you don't have to work that hard um, and you can sort of there's sort of this free flowing thing where you sort of make your own curriculum um, I I did work hard um, once I. Once I kind of like figured out what I wanted to do, I worked hard. But like that's I think why it has that reputation. It's also Providence, like RISD's in Providence. It's like a chiller place. But you're you're a smart dude, like in the sense of, you know, you you do hear about these sort of um, auteur filmmakers who never go to film school and don't take the traditional channels. But then more so than not, I find like you are a part of this specific sort of new age of directors that are like that that have the entire toolkit you know what i mean like you can break all the rules but you know all the rules yeah i mean i don't i don't i don't know i don't always feel that way but um but um no i don't feel that way i mean i just i feel like yeah i feel like every time i'm like learning new stuff i feel like now maybe i do understand what to do to sort of get a reaction from an audience. I mean, it's weird. Like the better you get or the more experience you get, the the more kind of mastery you have over your craft, but the less uh the less like there's there's less of an opportunity to like do something new that no one's ever done before because you've just you're just in it, you know? You've just done it. Um so like things I haven't rewatched The Wackness in a long time, but I'm sure there are things in in that movie that I would never would never even occur to me today because they were breaking some rule that I now know is like a rule of filmmaking. Right. Um, so I don't know. I mean, but I like knowing. I like I like where I am now. Like I like kind of feeling like I know what's up. Do you like you talk about being exposed to movies like Taxi Driver and Do the Right Thing? Do you have a pretty like in depth like nomenclature of of past movies and because i i was saying to my friend the other day i'm like is quentin tarantino like the greatest filmmaker or is he just like does he have the deepest knowledge of movies so he's like the best thief ever it's probably one and the same to a certain extent i think that's what's interesting about movies is like you're you're it's inherently like a pastiche so you're stealing if you steal from one person and then from another person then from another person you're making something completely unique Mm. um so you know, Tarantino was stealing from people who stole from other people and Scorsese was stealing from people who stole from other people. But it is interesting. I mean, it's it's one of the few disciplines where the most successful people and the most creatively um, kind of great people know the most about the history of that. So, like, I don't know if 
Bruce Springsteen or Paul McCartney are the biggest. I'm sure they know a lot about music, but you know, you look at Tarantino and Scorsese, like they have encyclopedic knowledge of filmmaking. Right. Um, they know every single movie. Paul Schrader, who I worked for, knows every single fucking movie, like everything. And and probably I worked for him in 2000. I'm sure he knows shit that I've not even heard of that just came out a month ago. Um, I'm not, you know, that's not the way it is for everyone. Like I think Seth and Evan, for example, like they have a, an encyclopedic knowledge of stuff that Scorsese and Tarantino probably don't even know about, you know, it's like more pop kind of stuff. Um, but, and, and, and it's like, you know, and it's stuff that is, and it's movies that I love and it's movies that I, I would like to make, but it's not like, um, you know, Boonwell or some shit like that. Sure. Um, does comedy have a lot to do with reference? Like I remember Jonah Hill makes a great joke and it's very tongue in cheek in um, this is the end to Jay Baruchel. Jay yeah. Baruchel makes a joke and, and cites something obscure and Jonah Hill says something. That's a great that, reference to you. Yeah. Like, like yeah, you have yeah. the best references, but it's yeah. kind of true, right? Yeah. I mean, as far as like, well, there's a whole like type of joke that now that I've done like three movies, um, with with those guys like i'm kind of bored of because it's like i see the math of it and it's really easy joke where it's just like it is mathematic to a certain extent right yeah a hundred percent but it's just like you're just you're just name checking like a celebrity basically yeah you know i mean the most famous example is in knocked up where it's like they're talking about martin Starr's beard and it's like oh like i don't know there's like 10 different references and so basically like what we do and it works beautifully is like we have like three writers on set and they sit at like a folding table right behind the monitor and they have three laptops and they have a printer too, which is the new innovation from the last time we did it. Um, and so like in between takes, they just run up to me with like little strips of dialogue. Um, like I get, like I, I walk away at the end of the day with like a hundred little pieces of paper in my pocket and I just scan them and I read them and sometimes I give them to the actors. But like, you know, we have some some jokes in long shot that are just like... Um, that are just like name checking celebrities. There's one in the trailer, which is like, we kind of combined, um, you know, it was like they, they test, they focus group tested like Charlize's character's relationship with, um, with Seth's character, but they couldn't say it because no one knows they're dating. So they had to, um, just take like other iconic, powerful women Mm. or beautiful women and just like match them up with like schlubby guys. So that's like just an endless fountain of, of humor. So it's like, you know, it's like Kate Middleton and Danny DeVito or like, you know, and so we just, you just combine stuff and those jokes, you know, you show them to a test audience and they, they inevitably destroy. Right. Um, so yeah, in that way, references are like pretty, pretty much the bread and butter of, of, of comedy these days, you know, and I think it was like, Apatow was probably the one who really brought it to the forefront. But um, how do you like I, – because I feel like Apatow sort of ushered in this age of put two funny people in a scene. You know, we have the skeleton there. Yeah. And especially now with digital, like just leave the camera yeah. fucking rolling. Things will happen. And yet like I feel like a lot of comedy since then – have fallen victim to this and I've never seen anything you've done fall victim to this where it becomes like where you can, I feel like we were starting to tell that there was never a script. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the night before kind of, that's where I saw that it could have happened. I may, I'm glad that it didn't because we had great editor and, 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 but it happened on set. Like there, there'd be times where I'd just be watching two of the funniest people in the world, like who, whoever it was, you know, Seth, 
Alana Glazer, mm. Jillian Bell, like like you know these amazing people, and they would just be. I'd be like, "What the fuck are we talking about again? Like, what's the point of this scene?" Um, so, you know, I think we kind of edited around that. But then, you know, when when I started this new movie, um, I was like, "That's a waste of fucking time. I don't want to do it. I don't want to." You know, I'll 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 let it go for like a second because you always get like five of the best jokes in the movie from it. Yeah. But I can tell now when it's gonna go crazy and like I have more confidence now to stop it because it's not it's 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 not what people want. I mean it does, it starts to feel old fashioned. Like forty year old virgin came out before the whackness. Um it was a long time ago. So um that's not what we want. And it also as a filmmaker, like every second that you're wasting on two comedians kind of riffing without focus. Um, and that's like, you know, the caveat is Seth can riff w- in character and move the story forward. So he's just like this, you know, one genuinely decade. this unicorn that like, he's the one of the few people that can do that. But like when you're doing that, you're just like, all right, well that's, that's like a shot that could be like my cool crane shot or I could have done that in a single take or whatever. So it's like, I think there's a movie I saw um, last year called Game Night. Have you seen that movie? Yes. Which I thought those guys did such an amazing job of of making it funny, but also like using the camera to tell the story. And so I thought about that movie a lot when I was making this movie. And I also thought about, you know, comedies from the 80s um, a lot, like When Harry Met Sally or Cameron Crowe movies and stuff like that. Those were more in my mind than like, um, than Judd's movies, even though, you know, his movies I, I love. And Knocked Up was obviously like a huge reference for this movie as well we were just trying to do more um more like we, we were just trying to tell the story more with the camera than than i have recently it's um yeah i mean i always say that my favorite comedy might be as good as it gets yeah, which, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know it's really walks that line and yet because it's it never winks at the audience yeah. like you're blurting out laughing but it's all born out of like these real stakes and, and the characters i mean and, yeah. and what a dick jack nicholson is and like the stakes of the character like and and helen hunt's like like i, I can't remember it it's like her kid and she's trying yeah, to get medical help for her kid and she's broke i mean james brooks and cameron crowe were both like two big references for this and james brooks you know also is not afraid to go to like a serious place in a comedy and then you undercut it with a joke i mean broadcast news have you seen that no if you like as good as it gets you should see that yeah that's like it's very very similar tonally and it's just great and they're just they're funny but they're not jokey you know i i have to admit i don't know if i ever told you this i had i remember sitting in the first screening for the whackness where that ill screening that tarantino was at at sundance like a dream yeah and what was there like more than 500 people there probably yeah and i had never i'd seen it a, a, you know, like a shitty copy of it right. on like a small TV in your editing office. Right. And I'm sitting there in this audience. I had no idea it was funny. Yeah, yeah None. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's probably why it works. Cause since then, the things that I hate about myself is when I'm sticking it up and like, you but, knew it was funny, dude. I, John, I had no, no, no. no. I, okay. Like, I, like I, I, I guess I, I knew it was fun. Like you they probably were, didn't understand the calibration of drama to humor but you were always going for jokes dude i remember the first day we 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 did I, anyway i'm sorry I no no, no. i i want to hear it no i i i didn't i remember belly laugh moments of yeah. like you know just like there were so many things like even the moment in the trailer where where olivia's like you never had sex before yeah, and yeah. i was like nah like you know and even moments but like you that you knew you were being funny 
I didn't. Okay. So what were you gonna this, say? Okay, so we're we're shooting the first day of shooting. I I just I remember it so well. It's like we're it's like this scene where it's outside Kingsley's office, and like Olivia has that dog, and like she talks about this the dude her dad sees who's like masturbating all the time, and you're like. And you, your reaction is like you're also your character is also masturbating all the time. And you're not. <laughs> but like you know, it's funny, and you delivered it so beautifully. And I was like, but maybe that's. But, but I see what you're saying. Like maybe that's when you're not going for a joke. Somehow it's like a different kind of funny. And um, I've made movies both ways. You know, it's much more confident and like more my taste to not go for a joke. Yeah. Um. And like you know, that's like. Um, like Joseph Gordon-Levitt said that on 50-50 because he came in like at the very last minute we had to like long story that I don't want to talk about but we had to like um, he replaced James McAvoy exactly. who was going through some family stuff exactly sure. exactly and so but it was like an urgent situation like how you, quick oh okay so McAvoy had like McAvoy had this family emergency which was a legit emergency which for his privacy I don't want to talk okay. about of but course. like he peaced out as soon as he got the news, which because he's a super good dude and he had to be with his family. Um, we, the reason it had to happen so quickly was because we we're, it was a very low budget movie and you can't just like sit on the sidelines for more than you're burning money every day. And we just couldn't afford it. So we, um, and we, we, we had a feeling that James was not going to be able to come back just based on the nature of what the emergency was. And so, um, so yeah, like Joe came out, kind of met with me and Seth and Evan and had to commit within like, I'd say within 48 hours of having read the script, maybe, maybe less. Um, and I remember, and, and he's so wonderful in the movie. And I remember he said like, he actually felt like it was a blessing to not have that prep time because if he had it, he would have gone too hard at the character and the drama of it. Mm-hmm. And it just allowed it to be a little bit lighter in general. Um, and so, you know, I think that to, to like the flip of that is what you're saying in the whackness is like, if we had talked about like trying to make it funnier, oh no, it would have been a fucking disaster. No, I don't think. Yeah. I remember like, I, I remember there was one scene with Kingsley where he's trying to smoke a bong and I was like, and I added some, something on the end of it. Like well, I walked back into his office and I'm like, nah, pull the stem out and clear it. Like, fuck. And, and I went... And it did, and I remember it not making it in, and 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 it occurred to me. I'm like, yeah, that just was too like, you know, like like oh, they needed a button for the scene, yeah, yeah, yeah you know. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and it's now also- that you're saying that, I'm like, I really want to go back and put that in. <laughs> Sounds like a funny joke, but it's like, but having the confidence to sort of let, I don't know, it was it, it was fascinating to me. But it's it's interesting because since then. I've always sort of walked that line, having been like a kid comedian yeah, at a yeah. young age doing shticky sitcoms. Yeah. And I remember, you know, I I did a TV show with our mutual friend Ravi, grandfathered for a year, and it was a really challenging experience for me. And it drove me in a good way back into like class and acting class. And I remember doing some comedy there, and and she kind of said, "That day is dead." Like the way you think about comedy, yeah. like is least common denominator funny. Right. Like you're thinking of it in like a honeymooners set up yeah, yeah, yeah. delivery way. She's like, she's like, I just think real life is way funnier. Yeah. And That's cool. That's yeah. a good acting teacher. I mean, look, I, as someone who has made a bunch of comedies, like, I don't know if it's dead. I just know that maybe in the Drake and Josh, you know, like yeah, the super I mean, sticky. Yeah. Sitcom. Maybe. Right. I mean, yeah. 
I think like big loud is like not funny, right? People trying hard is not funny. Yeah. So unless that's the joke. I mean, that's the other thing is like there's so many like levels now of like self-reflexive meta commentary on jokes um, that that you could make a joke about someone being big and like audiences would laugh at that because it's just it's just smarter. Like every like things are just smarter. And the vibe of comedy that's been informed by like stuff like The Office and and you know is like yeah. a little more what you might have called like a drama in the past in a weird way, you know? Um like yeah, I'm just trying like like that like Hal Ashby movies, um, which I think are very funny um, were, were not necessarily classified as comedies in the 70s. Um, James Brooks movies, which are very funny, were not classified as comedies in the 80s necessarily. I mean, you know, I, we were rewatching Tootsie for the movie I, that's about to come out, um, Long Shot. Um, Word, May plug 3rd, that shit. May 3rd. <laughs> Go watch it. Treat um, yourself. Uh, but, um, and, and, and that is fucking so funny, but it is so ahead of its time too, just the way that it, the, the rhythms of it. Oh, Lewis. My dog just walked in. What's up, Lewis? Hi, sweetie. What's up, pal? That's him shaking. Lewis is coming in. He's our guest host today. Isn't he so cute? Yeah, he's a beauty. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, man, it is interesting. Um, but I'm, I'm interested. Yeah. I'm interested to know what you're, because like, granted at the time, like now I look at us, like we both have kids, like. Where I, I think of you much more as like my my bro, like a peer. Yeah, yeah. But I remember when we did the Wackness, I was twenty, you were thirty. Yeah, I was older than you. And now we're the same. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but like my experience or my um sort of perception of you on the movie was like you seemed unflappable. Like I remember I don't ever remember a time where you like lost your temper or seemed nervous. Yeah. Like you just seemed secure. I'll tell you as an actor, which was one of, and I've only had very few of these experiences and it always weirdly turns out to be the things I'm proud of. And maybe it's just because I'm right for the part. Yeah. I always felt like you liked what I did. Like yeah, yeah, I felt yeah. like you, you were a fan. Yeah, and, yeah. and so I knew that, all right, I'm going to fuck up but for like, sure. But like, of course I would be, right? Like, cause, cause we cast you, you know what I mean? I have like, I, I do have to pretend to be fans of people I'm not fans of sometimes because it's either a day player or someone who you haven't had a chance to audition and you don't like what they're doing. Um, but usually you just love the people you're working with because you get to pick the people you work with. You know, that's a cool thing about being a director. But that's like the, that's Gus Van Sant sort of talks about how it's 90% casting. Yeah. Would you find, do you think that's true? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you can't have a good movie without a good cast, you know? Um, I think that, and, and no, and, and you don't, you know, this, this notion of a director as someone who gets a performance out of someone or something like that is complete, not my experience it's not um, true it, does it happen at all you know it might like i heard like like our, our casting director francine Maisler works with paul greengrass who works a lot of the time with non-actors or whatever and she's like yeah he just does his magic and it's amazing and so that yeah i think that if you have that in your arsenal um that's amazing to, to be able to get performances out of people who are non-actors to get them comfortable to to give them a note that like unlocks the whole scene. Uh, in my experience, when I give a note, it makes shit way worse. Really? <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> and so that because actors inherently go into their head or whatever, or I'm not. Yeah, or I'm not an actor, so I'm not speaking the same language. Or huh. you know what? What? 
and like I remember in film school, I would read these, you know, books about Stanislavski or inside out versus outside in acting and stuff like that. And it would just confuse me. And so I would, I end up sometimes when I'm talking to actors, unless I have a shorthand with them, just talking in these weird flowery Metaphors. intellectual terms that just, yeah, that just confuse them. Yeah. And, and I think the, what those books said was like, you're not supposed to ask for like a results driven note, right? Like, don't do faster. Don't say whatever. And what I find now, like after like Charlize Theron, Academy Award winning, fucking amazing, most amazing actor in the world, would love a note like "Do it faster." <laughs> oh my god! Like, like or 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 just like because so much of it is rhythm and so much of it is um, so much of it is precision that you know those notes which I'd heard you're not supposed to give are actually sometimes the most effective notes. And so I think for a really long time, I was just like giving bad notes because I was scared to say the wrong thing. So of course I ended up saying the wrong thing. Um, but yeah, I, no, it's casting. I remember you gave me a note, that note once when I was, we were, I remember it took us like 20 takes to get that, that jib shot where we used a crane to pull a techno crane up to the roof. Well, dude, that's because the camera operator was drunk. Do you he remember was, that? Yes. Yeah. So we got this. This is the craziest thing. <laughs> we had a crane lift a crane in pieces to the top of a New York building. And so we did this crane shot on top of a New York building. And it was fucked because the crane operator smelled like alcohol. It was like, it was the craziest night of shooting. It was like a 20 hour shoot. Right. Um, sorry. I don't remember what note, what note did I give you though? I remember. And you were sitting on this fucking thousand feet in the air on this water tower. Uh I was on this water tower and I remember like, and it was one of like the, literally one of the, the, what would, how could I say like, I guess like the most direct note you gave me where I'm smoking weed and I'm like in my head because that was kind of my entire character was in his head the whole movie. And I remember you just said, and it was a close up and you just were like, Josh, less. <laughs> and, and I remember just being like. I'm so glad he fucking said that. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, it, I yelled that in front of people. Not even because I'm sure you were. We were on like the 19th. Well, take. right, but so that's like, but but it wasn't. I I think that was also probably a lesson in that I would only do something like that when it felt like there was a really time pressured situation or whatever, and I could tell that actors liked it. Like I could just tell. So oh, then yeah. I just started doing it more. I mean, less is like, I can't remember what's the anecdote about. It's just yeah. I, what? Who said do less? Was it Mike Nichols to Dustin Hoffman? I can't remember. It was like, it was like um, that's always a great note. Do less is always a great note. I and I remember appreciating it because instead of feeling like whoa, like where's this coming from? It felt like someone's watching my back. Right, right. right. Like and that it, it, it's funny too, you know, because it's when I say like that, I felt like you were a fan. It, I say that in the sense of I felt comfortable enough to fuck up. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. you, I trusted your taste, right, if right. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's, that's like the best collaboration. Everything. Yeah. Cause like, if you don't, and like, that's what's, that's what, when you can get to that point with an actor where you're like, I think, that, I don't know, it's kind of, that joke's kind of whack or like where you can really just be yourself and just tell them how you're, how you're feeling in your own, like as if you were a viewer watching the movie and then I'm fine. Like if I were to say something to you and you would be like, eh, just let me try it you know I'd be like, totally, let's try it. Right. Um, and I think that also gives you a little bit of leeway too because you're not, like, I'm not, like, rigid and dogmatic about it so you can always feel like you could, I, I'm always open to, like, talking about stuff. But were you, to my point before, were you stressed making that movie or were you, you just kind of knew what you were doing? 
I, I don't like actually going to set and stuff. You know, I don't like waking up early. I don't like everyone asking me questions. I don't me like either. thinking. I don't like <laughs> thinking a lot. But no, I don't think I was like stressed. I think I probably liked what we were doing, and I think that was fun. And I think that um, I don't get I don't get stressed. Like like actually, it's weird. Like on a movie set is one of the few places that I don't get stressed because there's nothing you can do. Like if something goes wrong. Something went wrong. There's nothing you can do. So, like, I kind of like it when something goes wrong. Because then I'm like, okay, I'm fucked. Like, what am I going to do? I have one option, you know? Because it's like, you have so many, you have infinite options in pre-production. But once you get to set, like, the sun's going to set at a certain point, you know? You're going to lose the light. You're going to lose location. Like, so, I mean, I have been, and so there was, like, in, in at AFI in film school, there was, a, a, I was making, like, a, a movie, like, a short film. And this actor. Shards. It wasn't shards. It was actually prior to shards. And it was like the actor, I, I was getting so stressed about time. And the actor was like, yo, you're stressing me the fuck out, dude. And I was like, I never forget it. Because I was like, that's not my job. My job is to make everyone comfortable and feel like what we're doing is good and feel like we have all the time in the world. Maybe not all the time in the world, but like when I go up to an actor and I'm like, we're kind of running out of time. I want that to happen like once or twice on a movie. Like I don't ever want the actor to have to worry about time. So the thing that stresses me out the most is time. And I have my shot list every day. And if I don't, you know, if, if I haven't gotten the first shot off in an hour and a half, I'm like the whole cascading waterfall of like stuff is stressing me the fuck out the whole day. Cause I want to get my shots. But like, other than that, there's there's very little stress. It's just pretty fun, you know? I mean, we were making, you know, we had Ben Kingsley. We had Method Man some days. Dude. You know, it was just cool. Um, and we were moving all around New York. But yeah, I mean, I probably was more worried about time than I let on. But I wasn't worried about, like, what we were doing. So be it, like, icons like Kingsley or someone as famous as as Charlize. And I won't throw Seth into this mix only because now, having made three movies with him, I imagine you guys have a shorthand. Is there a special handling that goes with working with people that are that famous? Um, I think it's less about the level of fame. Like, the fame thing just fucks with me. It doesn't fuck with them. They're just people, right? Sure. Like, they didn't choose how famous they were. I mean, I'm sure they're happy about it. But they don't know... You know, I'm a person who consumes media, so I get intimidated by famous people, of course. Yeah. Um, but no, I feel like the just the way of handling all people is like to re like I, I you have to have like a high like EQ and a high sort of understanding of like social dynamics and you just start to read people. You start to learn them. Um yeah, I mean, is it harder dealing with Charlize and Sir Ben than it is like, you know, some day player who just walked like maybe only because they're they're more powerful than you like that's the that's the weird thing you have to figure out it's like also the power dynamic like it never it's never come to this but like if they didn't want to do something like there's no way i could get them to do it except if they like understood that i had good taste and thought it was worth trying so like um you know i've been very lucky in that all the really ultra famous people and talented people I've worked with are, 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 are super cool. Um, and so, you know, I always just vibe with them on like a personal level. So ultimately it's easy to talk to them. That's not to say I'm not super scared at the beginning. Um, but you get there pretty quickly. Um, like, like Sir Ben is like, he was like 
a little older than us. I'm not sure how old he is. Yeah, he's, he's in his 70s. He's been like 65 for like 30 years. <laughs> but like, um, so that was also like, I can't, I can't just be like, what's up, man? Like, you know, I can't like just. Yeah. And so that's its own obstacle. Um, he was sort of like the senior person on set. But he was um, so prepared, wasn't oh, he? Oh, and he's also just like amazing. And he's also doing stuff that like, he's kind of just like from outer space. You're just kind of like, I'm not, I don't even know what to say to you because you're doing something that's so crazy and cool that like, I'm not even going to bother. It's mostly like, it's mostly like blocking shit or like this angle. Like it's mostly like technical stuff that you're telling Kingsley. Did you ever give him a note? Like a performance note? Yeah, no, I never, no, yes, I did. And he overruled me. Really? <laughs> and he was right. Yeah, totally. It was like when you were like leaving. It was like when it was like the last scene between the two of you in his apartment, and he was like playing it like real bummed out. And I was like, I think like there, it's a little bit like more like you just came out. You know, you're 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 on the other side, but it's a little more bittersweet. It's a little more like maybe it's a little more like a a sort of you could play it with a sardonic smile or whatever. I, I can't remember. It was it was not. A, I didn't articulate the note super well. But I was like, I want to see more hope. I could end. see that. And he's like, you'll see the hope here. And he pointed at his eyes. And I was like, all right, I'll, I'll, try to, I'll try to pay attention to that. And on my little monitor, I didn't see it. Um, and then in the movie, of course, like I saw it. He, he's, he's, uh, you know, he had utter mastery and knew exactly what he was doing. And he was being a storyteller, fitting himself into the context of the movie. He wasn't doing some virtuoso shit. Like he was, he was telling the story. But he got what I was saying. It's just he didn't. He he got the issue. He just didn't like the prescription, so he decided to do his own mm. thing. Um, that's the only note I can remember giving him. And I, I one day I tried to tell him how a bong worked, and he kind of told me to fuck off. So I was like, "All right, we know I'll cut around it." And he did, <laughs> and he didn't. Well, you, I remember you had phoned to where Vancouver to pitch him the movie. And yeah, he, yeah. And then when he signed on, you guys, all he talked about was the hair, right? Like you really had no talk of the character. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I, you know, since it was like my first movie as a writer-director, I'm sure I sent him all these emails and stuff. But he, you know, I I do remember it was like three months out and he was like, I'm about to start preparing, so please, no revisions. And I was just wow. like, I was like, oh shit, dude. Now I like write the scene the morning I wake up. Um, but I, I don't think we actually did that. I think we probably changed some stuff. But um yeah, we didn't know. He was studying the text. Like, he was getting it all from the script, which was great because I wrote the script. So I was like, cool. He's like reading stuff into my script. <laughs> like, but um, yeah, no, as soon as he, like, when he showed up, um, I had no idea what he was going to sound like. I knew what he was going to look like because we did, like, camera tests with him. But no, I had no idea. It was like an adventure. And you knew that he'd, you know, not have his British accent, like. Yeah. Right. I knew that. But I didn't know what his. Like I, th I, I, I like was too nervous to ask him to like do it for me prior to shooting. So I just, as soon as we started, it, I remember it was the two of you walking up that hill, like pushing the ice yeah, cart in, in uh, Dumbo. Um, it's a, that's a block I've walked down like so many times now. It's, it looks so different. Um, but yeah, I was just like, I had my headphones on, like listening to me. Like, and I kind of like, I think I probably looked at the producers like, hmm, okay, cool. I remember being jarred initially because he kind, you know, because I didn't realize at first that he was gonna be play this thing where he was sort of like I I forgot I didn't do the due diligence to realize that like oh he's like on meds up to his teeth right like I did not picture what he was gonna do like I just didn't I pictured like a much more kind of like normal performance um, 
And so it was a little for a second. I was like, "This is a little scary." Like, of course. Um, and I was like, "Fuck it, he's Ben Kingsley. Like, he'll, he'll, he'll. It's, it's. I trust him." It was so good. Um, and I'll, yeah, of course, it was so good. And like, it's just. I mean, that's one of the things of like when you've done like when when it's like your own thing and it's like your first thing and like you are like really opposed to big swings. Now I'm like big swings are like where everything lives and dies for me. But like, so I was like scared of it. But he has done. You know, this that was probably his. 40th movie he's he knows he's only doing this because he can take a big swing and he and with him like that's the that's that's a safer bet than with other actors um so yeah now you talk about your shot list what does your prep look like day to day when you i I guess the pre-production part and then how are you outfitting yourself every day when you walk on the set like i do i basically have this microsoft excel document um and i do every so it's like I and I've done it ever since film school and it's like um it's like it says like interior or exterior day or night location and that's a description of the shot and it allows me and then I apply a day to it so and Microsoft Excel has these macros where I can just be like all right like day one I have thirty seven shots so I can so in prep it's really handy because then I can talk to the AD. And be like, yo, we're not going to make this day. We need to move something to another day. It's not like guesswork. It becomes just a math problem. And then for sequences, like that's just for everyday shit. And like now I, I, I used to need it, but now it's like, okay, well, if it's close up, close up and a two shot, I'll still write it down. But like, I understand what sure. that is. Like, um, so... And then for like action sequences or any sequence that's like more complicated, I'll storyboard it. Um, but every day I will have a printed out shot list that I print out at the beginning of the day and like go over in the car. And sometimes I throw it away, probably a third of the time or half the time I throw it away. Completely. Yeah. I mean, give or take. Like it's just, yeah, nothing is the same. I don't throw it away completely, but, but it, nothing is exactly like it is. It, nothing is exactly like I wrote it. Um, and, and a lot of the time it, it's, it's the, it's the thing that really like one, and that's probably why you, you thought I was like on top of shit is because I was, and it gives me sort of the, it gives me, it bolsters me because I know that like, there's gonna be a hundred different questions and I'm going to get lost and, or the day's going to get away from me, but at least I can look at that document and be like, no matter how fucked I am, I can have that document and I feel prepared. Whether I am prepared or not, whether it's the right shot or not, doesn't matter. Like, I just feel prepared. So what do you do on a movie like the movie you did with Amy Schumer, which yeah. had, like, these intense, you know, action sequences? We storyboarded those. And, like, but what if you don't, what if you're like, I don't know how to do this? Like, I've never done something quite like this before. How do you find resource? Do you go watch other movies? Do you ask other yeah, filmmakers? you watch other movies. I remember for that movie, I watched a lot of them. And, and you could argue that I didn't know how to do it because I'm not <laughs> sure I executed that well. But, like, um, the I watched other movies. Like, I watched 21 Jump Street and The Rundown and, like, a bunch of movies. And then, yeah, you have support. Like, that's a studio movie. So there's a second unit director um there's a there's stuntmen yeah the stuntmen always come up with ideas the dp always comes up with ideas we had a great dp um so but i mean you kind of like i kind of know how to i should know how to do it by this point even if i haven't done that specific thing like i should understand by having having made seven movies at this point like i understand how you tell a story with a camera whether it's you know a dramatic scene or comedic scene or an action scene 
Um, it doesn't mean I'm good at it, but at least I should have the basic kind of tools to, to, to do it. Um, and it's exciting. I mean, it's fucking cool. You get all these toys, you get, all, you know, it's really, really cool. Do you, I was listening to D'Onofrio talk about, um, working with Stanley Kubrick and said two things. One, to your point about notes to an actor, yeah. like Mark Maron was saying, like, did he, and I've had him on, on this pod as well. He was yeah. like, did you, did, did he have any involvement in your process? He said, no, yeah. like wanted nothing to do with the process. And right. like the notes were, you guys got to be quicker than that. Or yeah. is that the most interesting choice? Yeah, yeah. Or can you do any better? Right. Cause if you can, I'm going to move. Right. <laughs> like, that's cool. I mean, I, I actually like that note. I mean, it's I, he, he sounds kind of like a dick. I would, <laughs> I would put it a little differently, but I'd be like, you know, I do ask that to actors a lot. I'd be like, is there anything else different you want to try? Because like, I'd like to move on. Right. And a lot of the time they say, yeah, I want. let me try one thing. Um, and a lot of the time that's the best thing. But like, um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I Did you go to that Kubrick exhibit at LACMA? I didn't. So, I mean, he's obviously, you know, someone who is just Matt Rushmore yeah it's yeah. just incredible so like I went there and then you hear about like all these things on Eyes Wide Shut which just had to be just such a weird set because it's like Tom Cruise is married to Nicole Kidman and they're doing like a movie about like their sex life but it's like a dream but they shot that movie for like I don't know nine months like a year they shot that movie so long and, and the thing about Kubrick I don't know if D'Onofrio mentioned this is like he does like a thousand takes, right? He does like 50 takes of everything. So even back then, did he? I like, think so, man. Really? I, I don't know. I just think like what I've heard is he does a lot of takes. And so I don't know what's going on in between those takes or what he's trying to get, or like as an actor, what you're thinking after take 40. And he's like going again, you he know, he wants to exhaust you. I would imagine. Maybe. Like, I mean, that's the Fincher thing, out. right? Like Fincher. I remember hearing an anecdote about Zodiac where Fincher was like, he was working with Hall, and like they were on take like 75 and finally he was like, okay, moving on. And he turned to like the technician and was like, delete the first 50. <laughs> like amazing. Loudly enough for Hall to hear. So I guess he's trying to like break him down. I heard Fincher was quoted once saying that he's like, every actor's won an Academy Award in the bathtub. He's right. like, I'm trying to get rid of those choices you made the day before. Right. Okay. So that's probably what it is. And then I also heard, I think Mark Ruffalo talked about Zodiac and he's like, it was my first day. And he's like, it's a scene that I'm in, but it's this grand fucking crane shot with all these extras and all this sort of motion going on. He said, and we literally are on the 40th plus take. And at that point he said, I am so dejected in my brain feeling like, I am the fucking worst. I've right. I've prepared incorrectly. I've made a bad choice. Why are we doing so many takes of this? He goes, and finally, Fincher goes, cut, 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 cut. And he's, he rushes on to set. He said, and he moves an extra a foot. Right. He said, they do it one more time. And he goes, good, moving on. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, and it occurred to me like, oh, he's that. You're not the, yeah. yeah. And it's not, might not be about you also. It was that extra. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah man. I love uh, background artists, but they've they've fucked up many a shot for me. Have but they? I'm like, that's the one area where I'm a dick. Not not to them specifically, but I'll just turn to the AD and say the worst things about extras. Solid. All right. Well, you like, gotta let it out. Yeah. Somehow. So maybe that's where I let out all my aggression. So how do you approach the writing of things? Um. I mean, like. 
I haven't written like a personal thing probably since the I, I just I'm just in the process of writing like rewriting a show about my film school experience um, a TV show um, and so that's something when, when it's personal it's really fun but it's also a little unruly because you just have fun writing dialogue and writing jokes and stuff like that do you, um, so you don't really outline I do like now I didn't outline I never outlined the wackness. The Wackness, I started, like, writing in film school, and, like, my teacher thought it was cool. I just wrote the first scene. It was probably the same as we shot it. Um, and I just didn't outline. I did not. I was like, I just want to write these guys. This is fun. And then it's, but but it's just a, an excuse not to write an outline, you know? Ultimately, you have to conform it to, like, a structure that works. And so if you're resisting writing an outline, it's just because you, it's just because writing an outline sucks. And the, maybe you don't know the beats, yeah, it's you're delaying asking yourself questions for you're you're like you're making a deal with yourself where it's like I'm going to delay asking myself questions for the fun of writing these characters and these wor- this world with no rules. Cuz it's almost like forensic in in the initial stages, right? Like it's like the words should be the fun part, but the beating out of the story is literally like on to your point, it's questions. It's like yeah. would this happen? Right. Is this the best version of what could happen? Yeah. Does this make sense? Totally. And like, and, and the structure of that is really, really important. And so now what I find is like, I have to, I have to outline. It's just, you, you just know it's better. I remember on the night before we were like two months out and Seth wasn't, and I, I initially I wrote the script by myself and Seth just wasn't loving it. Um, and he asked me to re-outline it two months out. I was just like, whoa, I'm scared of this. And I got like, ultimately like all those guys, like, came on to help me and we write like every night together but I saw that like and I'd never outlined that movie at all and I saw that like how valuable outlining was and that's not to say the draft I wrote was not good it just wasn't delivering the story beats that we needed to Mm. make it a movie that was entertaining the whole way through so from that moment on I was like I better just start with outlining because eventually I'm gonna have to well, and, and then I'll just, you know, and so then what's fun is you outline and now then you get to add the fun stuff. So it makes writing it more fun right. because you're not lost in the process of writing it and you're not doing, I mean, the other thing I would find myself doing was kind of the, the, the writing equivalent of two comedians improvising on set, which is just like, I would just, cause I can write funny lines all the time. So it was just like, I would just write like fucking two people saying funny shit for five pages and by the way, that's not very funny if you read it. <laughs> you know, it's right. funny to me, but like, I know it, there's no, there's nothing funny about watching, no, about watching a scene with no direction. There's just nothing funny about it, or no stakes, or just people just talking to each other. You can do that yourself. Well, every scene has to have conflict, right? I feel like every scene has to have conflict or stakes or an idea. Like, it can't just be like if the idea was that two people are sitting talking about nothing. Like, I guess that's a movie. It probably gets boring pretty quickly, but like, um, but you know, I guess Seinfeld did it. Richard Linkletter did it. Um, but yes, it has, it most, mostly it has to have stakes or it has to push the story forward. Um, and you know, those scenes aren't necessarily fun to shoot either scenes where it's just like expositional information that's furthering the plot, but they, they're necessary. Well, it's like I think it's the South Park rule. The it should be um, buts and therefores instead of ends. So instead of the story going, 
you know, this happens and then this happens and this happens. It should, it's gotta be, this happens, but then this happens, therefore this happens, right. but this happens. So which is like the opposite of improv, which is like the yes. And did you ever do that? Like improv, like UCB stuff? Nah. No, I don't really revere that at all. Like yeah. even though like some great performers have come out of it, improv comedy in general makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> Like Annie and I have been to that UCB theater. It's pretty fun. Like the uh, that guy Thomas uh, Middleditch and and Ben Schwartz. They they did a show. We that we, it's just it's like watching someone freestyle, right? It's just like it's pretty cool. Like just the 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 trick of it, right? Um, but yeah, no, I I I uh, I don't know. It's I I think I mean I think that a better the more conflict in a scene, the better the scene's gonna be. Um, although, you know, on this last movie, like I was, we were doing like love scenes and there's not really conflict yet, you know? So, and those are like the most fun, I guess it was like the anticipation, like the scene where Seth and Charlize's characters hook up for the first time is like my favorite scene. And, uh, I don't know if there was conflict, but there's like anticipation and there's, I guess there's conflict. I mean, I guess you're like, will they or won't they? There's a question being asked, Mm -hmm. um, which I guess is what makes it. You don't know what's going to happen. There's a there's sort of a a, a, a plot fulcrum around it, um, so that's cool too. So there's like that adage of like you have three movies in the movie you write, the movie you shoot, and then inevitably the movie you edit. So what's your strategy when you get into the edit? Is it just about killing your darlings, or is it? Well, like that's one thing. Like you've been very nice about me on set and stuff, but I don't think I'm particularly good on set. Like I think that the edit is like the one place where I'm like, okay, I'm kind of good at this. Like that's the one place where I can um, really make a movie work. Um, the Wackness is a perfect example. I mean, we had everything, but we edited it in, I don't know, we finished shooting, what, September? And we had to deliver it to Sundance in, like, November to submit. Wasn't Maybe the October. first cut two hours, like, 40 minutes? Like, didn't well, you dude, cut more than an hour this, out? The first cut of this movie I just did was four and a half hours. Dude. Yeah, no, it's crazy. Um, and that you hear that a lot in in comedies too. We wrote this really long. I mean, this was a really long movie, but like, um, yeah, it's, uh, the, but, but to cut an hour out of the whackness when you have six weeks or less to cut is probably the biggest challenge I've ever had. I mean, we were in the editing room nonstop. Um, and, but what, what I've learned now, it's like, I, I can, I'm, it's, it is about killing your darlings. But I come in with like such a like healthy, like by that point, I just like hate everything, you know, not in in like a healthy way. I'm like, I have a very high bar for what I like and what I don't like. Hmm. And so, and I don't, and I try to watch it like an audience member. I try to watch it like myself if I went into a movie and didn't know anything about it. So when you have, when you're really true to that, like kind of test, um, stuff falls out pretty quickly. Um, and you also have confidence that like, you don't cut it all out at once. You, you're like, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a whole bucket of stuff that you're like, well, wait, I know I'll cut that in two weeks, but like, let's hold on to that for a second. And it's just a process. So, um, no, I'm like very confident in the editing room and I really, and, and also like I start putting music to stuff and it just becomes like really, really fun. Yeah. Um, and like, that's my favorite thing is just like putting music behind a scene and like, and like just watching it come to life. Um, so, and like on this last movie, you know, a lot of it was improvisation that we were cutting out. Um, but a lot of it was story and you just figure out how to kind of cut sometimes cutting, like when you don't see something and you just kind of have an ellipsis and you, and you see 
um, what happens when it, you know, and you put it off screen, it actually helps the audience engage. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a thing, you know, and I don't think movies should be particularly long. Um, you know, um, so I remember you being very specific about that. I remember someone was reading the running time on the Wackness and yeah. it was an older running time and yeah, I think yeah. it was like an hour 40 plus and yeah. you had cut it down to about 90 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were emphatic with like, please make sure this is corrected. No one wants to watch an hour 40 minute stoner yeah, yeah. comedy. Right, right. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I get, I get, because there's so many movies that I just think would be like slightly better if they were shorter. Yes. You know? um, and, and like, I'll, I mean, even movies I've made that I watch, I don't, I don't really, it's not like I watch them, but like, <laughs> But that, you know, there's, when, when, when I see a movie come on TV or like whatever, I, I will stop on it for 10 minutes and watch it because it's like helpful. And I'm always just like, oh shit, like I should cut that. I should cut that. Like always. Of course. Um, so, I mean, it's a never ending process of like, of like honing the material. I was reading Adam McKay, um, who directed like The Big Short and, and Vice, like he counts frames and he just won't have a frame extra if he can and i think i'd like to get to that point i'm probably too lazy to count frames but 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 maybe on the next one what um uh, here i don't want to keep you because i know you have a lunch um i should go in i should summon 10 minutes okay cool okay i have yeah two more questions and then we'll be done Uh, do you write these questions down no oh but you remember all your questions yeah i mean it's just a conversation I um I mean I'm lucky because we know each other so these are always the easy ones. Who's like the hard? No, I sh- I'll ask you after we're done. The hardest ones. Are, well, I just interviewed Dove Charney. Do you know who that is? No, who's that? He was the ex um, head of American Apparel, the CEO who like drove oh, the company to the no ground. Oh no, shit, man! Yeah, the original person. Yeah, Dove. <gasps> but that guy's maybe a bad dude, right? Right. Well, he's an interesting figure, and basically he's so pedantic that he just spent two hours telling me why I don't understand proxy law, and I was like, you're right, I don't, but I also represent the masses, like the general public, and I'm like, this is what we all think. Yeah, yeah. So explain to me why I shouldn't think this way. Right. But, yeah. I got to listen to this. Is, uh, it, is it up? No, not yet. Okay. It's coming. We'll see if he lets me put it up. I kind of was <laughs> like, dude, I'll give you a little bit of a cool down. Oh, really quick. What's the number one takeaway from Paul Schrader? From Paul Schrader? What I thought was coolest about Paul Schrader, and by the way, people should watch his movie, uh, First Reform. I heard it's excellent. so great. Um, he was just, I just listened to the way he would navigate, because I knew nothing, right? I was 25, living in New York, couldn't be further away from here. And uh, just listening to the way he like navigated people um, on the phone, uh, in emails, um, you know, he was just, he's like, first of all, he's like the funniest dude. He's also like a badass. He's also like kind of a dick. He's also a really nice guy. Like he's all these contradictions, mm. but his like, his like directorial persona. And that's not to say that like I have one cause I don't really adopt one, but just, you could see that like, there was a little bit of like a millisecond of calculation before he did anything. Even if he did something that was like losing his temper, it was for a reason. Um, you know, and so I could, I would listen to him just like lose his temper with someone, but in a very confident way to get what he wanted. And then I would have him dictate me a note to his costume designer six months after the movie was, was released about how beautiful and how the, her costumes were and how he can't stop thinking about them. So it was like the cult of personality that he had. I don't know if I learned that much from it, but it was, it made a significant impact on me. Mm. And he was, I mean, it's, it was also just pretty cool. Like he, he wrote Taxi Driver, which is like the movie I, I watched on VHS that made me want to do this. So 
Yeah, he's a pretty cool guy. What, just, what about Seth? The takeaway from Seth? I mean, Seth is just incredibly rigorous, right? He just, he just grinds. Like he, which is like a weird thing to say because he's also just has that, you know, uh, indescribable like creative spark that is a once in a generation creative spark. But he's never stops being thoughtful about what he's doing and never stops wanting to make it better. To the point where he's asking me to re-outline the fucking movie two months before it comes out. But like, but but I respected it, and I was like, okay, he's right, and his taste is impeccable. So like, he just won't stop when a scene is on his feet. He just won't stop. Try this, try that. Let's try everything we can do to make this thing as great as it can possibly be, and that means the movie's gonna be good, no matter what. It won't be bad, you know. Yeah. It might not be the best movie ever made, but it's never gonna be bad. And if you know you're making something that's not gonna be bad, you can take risks and you can feel good. And like the 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 one we're that's about to come out, I think is the best thing we've done. And um and it was sort of the perfection of that process of like we just all clicked Charlize too, and we would not accept anything less than greatness. And like that in your life, if you can do that, pretty good takeaway, you know? Um, okay, last question. It's what I ask everyone on the pod. What are the one or two Jonathan Levine commandments, truths that you have discovered that you'd want to impress upon someone else? Well, I think like being kind to people is a pretty good one, you know, just in general. Um, it's a kind of lame thing to say, but it really the reason I get to keep working, you know, I've made movies that have been successful, movies that have been not successful, but the reason I get to keep working is because, like, I'm kind and respectful to people, and um, and I'm thoughtful, and I really try to be empathetic. Um, that's one. Like, work-related shit? Anything. What else, man? And it could just be one. Well, like, give me two seconds. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know. Travel? I like to travel. Have you been traveling at all? I've been around. I went to Bali with my wife. Yeah. And been around a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really important too. If you, if you, if you have the means, um, like to be able to, you know, even if you just get away for a little bit, I mean, so much of the stuff I've written has been not here. Um, and just getting inspired by stuff, um, I think is really like just going, you know, just going away for the weekend like i used to go to palm springs and just like sit in the 110 degree heat in a shitty hotel room um and i would go i would sit and write and smoke weed and then i would go jump in the pool for like five minutes but it would always be too hot to stay outside for that long and i would write like you know 40 50 pages a weekend and just being away from home i think was really cool um that's not as good as being kind (laughs) um 40 50 pages holy shit yeah, but dude, like I'm saying, like it's just people talking. Were they all good? No, they're they terrible. Good? All sure. right, all right, that makes me feel better. <laughs> Thank you, dude. Thanks, dude. This is bad. That was it. That was Jonathan Levine. Boo! Another podcast in the books. You finish that shit. Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you guys for living. Thank you guys for being you. And what more could I ask for? I mean, I feel so lucky. Anyway, have a great week. Remember that Uncle Josh thinks you're the best, and fuck them all. Fuck the rest. Fuck the haters. Who are they even? You know that they go home and they, like, eat their boogers. The haters. They're weird, too. Yeah, they got their perfect bodies and their chiseled features, but deep down inside, they're fucking rats. So who cares? 
We're the salt of the earth people. I'm assuming that everyone who listens to this podcast is a fucking gem. Except for the ones, the couple of you that leave bad reviews. If that's you, fuck yourself. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening. Love you. Bye.